This week, I speak with Ryan and Janice of Nora Gray and Elena Restaurants in Montreal. They have a new book out called Salad, Pizza, Wine, and I think you're going to love it. I'm Chris Spear, and you're listening to Chefs Without Restaurants, the show where I usually speak with culinary entrepreneurs and people working in the food and beverage industry outside of a traditional restaurant setting. But today, my guests actually do have a couple of restaurants. One of the fun benefits of this podcast is that I get advanced copies of a lot of cookbooks. I'm sure you've noticed that I've had quite a few cookbook authors on the show recently. So on the show, we talk about how the Montreal food scene has continued to evolve in recent years. But we also spoke about how they've evolved and how they've wanted their restaurants to evolve as well. We talk about culture and building restaurants that were healthy for both the employees and the customers, but that has to start at the top. We talk about what local means to them. What does it look like to run a Montreal pizzeria? They decided that importing all the ingredients from Italy wasn't the right move for them, so they started to look locally. And of course, we talk about their new cookbook. One of the things I wanted to talk to them about was natural wine. It's something I think a lot of people are hearing more about these days, but personally, I still didn't really know much about it, so I wanted to learn a little. If you're interested in picking up a copy of the cookbook, click the link in my bio. If you like pizza, salad, and or wine, I think you're going to enjoy it. And this week's episode has been brought to you by the United States Personal Chef Association and Hire a Chef. The show will be coming right up after a word from our sponsor. Are you a personal chef looking for support and growth opportunities? Look no further than the United States Personal Chef Association. With nearly 1,000 members across the U.S. and Canada, USPCA provides liability insurance, certification, lead generation, and more. Consumers can trust that their meal experience is insured and supported by USPCA. And now, for a limited time, save $75 on new membership and get your premier listing on Hire a Chef by using the code TAXBREAK2023 at USPCA.com. That's capital T, capital B. Plus, if you have products or services to sell chefs and their clients, showcase your business on Hire a Chef and USPCA websites with our great introductory packages. To learn more about membership, advertising, or partnership opportunities, call Angela at 1-800-995-2138, extension 705, or email A-P-R-A-T-H-E-R at USPCA.com. Hey, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for coming on. I'm really looking forward to talking to you today. Thanks for having, Thanks for having us, Chris. You uh, are in one of my favorite cities in the world, and I think one of the coolest food cities. And uh, it's probably been about five or six years since I've been up there, and I'm overdue for another trip soon. And Montreal's the best. <laughs> I think uh, it's been like 17 years ago, and I remember, you know, Anthony Bourdain did like no reservations up there, and it was... They called it the most interesting or, or like it was one of the places he featured. And then I think Bon Appetit magazine like that month also called it like the most European city in North America. And I was like, oh, I really think I need to take a trip up there and went up there for my 30th birthday and eat, ate my way through. But that was 17 years ago. And I know it's changed significantly since then. Yes. Yeah, I mean, in every way, Montreal's different. You know, I mean, A, that it's a French speaking, you know, like bastion in like a sea of, of English. Um, and you know, like the, here they do such, you know, I guess like they do so much, the government does so much to protect the French language, um, to keep it the way it is, to kind of keep it like, keep it weird and different, I guess, from everywhere else, um, which it very much is, but it's really interesting how the food scene also has like kind of evolved in a completely different way than everywhere else in North America. I think that like, you know, having had these uh, roots in like, uh, having been colonized by the French, but also, you know, ha having had 
the British here as well. We have this incredibly deep and rich and old food culture. Like Montreal's, you know, 400 years old. It's it's a it's significantly older than than almost all you know American cities. You know, it has a completely different background as far as like it, you know, where where the history of food comes from here, and thus people eat and drink differently here and always have. Can we start with a little bit of your food backgrounds? Like where, like, did you come up through the food industry? Have you always loved food and cooking? Uh, my grandfather on my father's side was a butcher. Um, so he had like a butcher shop and my father kind of grew up like doing deliveries and stuff like that. And um, my both my grandmothers on both sides were just constantly churning out so much food and having like big family dinners and stuff like that. So it's definitely like a big connection of like family, comfort, food, you know, all connected there. I didn't pursue a career in cooking initially. I, I studied fine arts and I, while I was in my undergrad, actually, I ended up getting swept up in the kind of political student movement there in Montreal, here in Montreal. And we ended up starting um, with some of my friends and uh, you know, co-students, we started a kind of a soup kitchen. Uh, at the university and that kind of took over my life a little bit for a few years and that was really my introduction to to cooking kind of on a scale where I got paid for it and for other people and it was really like to provide and provide something a service that wasn't available to to a lot of students like to give give them something like kind of nutritious and you know accessible and affordable you know um, that just didn't really exist at the time so that I did that for a few years and then from there I kind of springboarded into working in uh, restaurants, uh, which was, I sort of, I, I say that I kind of came in through the back door a little bit. <laughs> I didn't really follow a traditional path. I didn't go to cooking school. Um, and I really like kind of immersed myself completely in that. I, I would just sort of sponge off of every person around me, did a lot of like deep dives into reading and um, YouTube was big for me. Um, yeah. So kind of when I jumped into the restaurant, working in restaurants it was like a whole different world for me and you know it was so exciting and I ended up dropping out of school <laughs> to to kind of go deeper and deeper into into cooking that's definitely not a traditional path especially starting with the soup kitchens I think that's really neat you know like you don't hear many people who kind of start their cooking career there but you know it's interesting because it gives you a different perspective I think coming into the culinary world as opposed to like working through some high-end restaurants or, or going to culinary school at the beginning. Yeah, it definitely was, everyone around me was really concerned with like food politics at a time where nobody was really talking about that in the mainstream, you know, talking about organic food, talking about sustainability, all these kinds of things that like now just seem ubiquitous and normal that everyone should be concerned about them. But at the time it was, you know, just sort of grassroots kind of activist student kind of culture. But it definitely, I would say, informed where I was coming from. And I definitely, you know, would see things from a different perspective, I think, than kids coming out of culinary school, you know, like what kind of things were on the menu. Like, I remember the the, the most common thing you'd see on the menu was like Chilean sea bass. And I was like, this is literally an endangered species. <laughs> what is happening? Yeah, I still don't serve it. It's been like, you know, uh, I think it disappeared, thank God, for like 20 years. Yeah. And now it's coming back a little. And I just, I'm not even in the mindset of cooking it. I don't it's know the last so time funny. I've eaten it or cooked it. Yeah. It's funny too because you know what the Chilean sea bass thing, like it wasn't even in like good restaurants. Like it might have been it was also, just but, like, everywhere. It was, like, it was everywhere, you know? Yeah. So, and it, so it, funny. They used to come in little like individually portioned souvenir bags too, which I uh, it blew my mind. Yeah. <laughs> even at the time. 
Well, how about you, Ryan? What's your background? How did you come into the food world? Um, I started working in restaurants when I was 18 as a cook, actually, at like a chain restaurant. And I mean, I immediately loved it. Like, you know, the, the camaraderie and how like, you know, that intensity and, you know, I have like, uh, I constantly need to be in like a state of like extreme stress in my life, you know? And like my whole world is about like balancing out this like need to be like always stressed and like have a million things happening. So like working in a kitchen, working in a busy restaurant was like just incredible. And then also, you know, being with so many awesome people and like getting to have so much fun at work, uh, it was really a special thing. And, you know, eventually I thought that my people skills would be put to better use in the front of house. And so at some point I moved after an incident where I spilled boiling hot soup all over myself in the kitchen, like a whole stock pot all over me uh, off the stove. Oh my God, uh, I don't think I've heard this story. <laughs> yeah, it, it was pretty good. I like, I was like, took the huge stock pot off of the stove in the, in the prep kitchen and I was walking around to fill the chafing dish that the servers were like, you know, would like serve the like portion their own soup with. And as I turned the corner, like it was obviously like the floor was full of soup that the waiters had spilled. And I made the turn and then spilled the whole thing came on me. I had second degree burns all over my body. Um, that was my last day in, in the kitchen there. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and so I, yeah, I, became, I, I started working as a waiter and then, um, you know, again, I loved, I loved the, the, I just loved the restaurants. It was just like something that was so special. And so my goal at first was to do restaurants, to work in restaurants, to be able to like afford my education through university and eventually yeah it just became like well you know what maybe if i just like drop out of university and but study wine uh, i could like be a restaurant professional which is what i did i ended up going to the hotel management school and studying wine here in montreal and um eventually was lucky enough to get a job working for some pretty amazing people and you know the rest is kind of history uh moved my way up and then eventually opened my own restaurant when did you open your restaurant I opened Nora Gray in 2011. Uh, I'd been working for like the five years before that with the Joe Beef Group. Uh, I opened up their second restaurant with them called Liverpool House. And then uh, that's where I met Emma Cardarelli, who's my partner at Nora Gray, my partner at Elena, and my partner at the new restaurant Gia as well, along with Janice. Actually, it's where I met Janice too. Janice, Janice, well, no, it's not true. Janice came to work with us at Nora Gray. But uh, yeah, we've all, we've all kind of worked together for, for a long time. And you decided you wanted to go open another restaurant together. Uh, we decided, yeah. And then once you have two, you kind of need three. So, and it was like the, <laughs> not, I mean, not exactly, but like, you know, the second restaurant was, was really a special thing. And we had this incredible team that we put together, uh, like an insanely stacked leadership management team. And truthfully, like the only way that we could see us, you know, keeping that kind of thing together was to like, to us to expand we were talking you touched on like this like issue of culture and stuff a little bit um i could like segue into that right now when we opened elena in 2018 um i think that the mindset had had already you know our mindset had already begun to change you know we're talking about you know uh me too moment i think that like you know there was when i my first restaurant nora gray like we opened it you know in that like okay, great. Like we've been running these restaurants for four years. We know that all you really need to do is serve great food and like just destroy people with booze and you can be successful, you know? Um, and like, and not to mention like consume as much as humanly possible yourself or even like as far in my case, like inhumanly possible. 
uh, amounts. And and then like you know we kind of took that culture that we we'd grown up in uh, with us to Nora Gray. And you know the first couple of years in Nora Gray were were pretty rough. Like we were rough. I was a bad boss. Ah. So yeah, Nora Gray was uh, at the time when I joined them. It was like I think they were in their second year. They just celebrated their second anniversary, and it was. You know, we were still, I think we were just sort of at the tail end of, you know, restaurants being a wild, wild west kind of place. We were just kind of coming out of that. So it was still super fun and crazy. And we we just had the best time all the time, you know. <laughs> and but, you know, like there, there's a there's another side to that, obviously. And uh, there's a consequence to that kind of behavior and lifestyle. And, you know, and I think we you know at this at this point now it's like easy to like reflect on like how that was like horrible and terrible but at the time you know that was just the culture everywhere so yeah i mean we all kind of i mean personally i i stepped away i worked there i worked at nora for a year and then stepped away and uh you know worked a couple other places and then but we before i left ryan was like you know we have plans so we want to open another place we want to open a pizzeria we really want you to be there. And I was always making pizza for Statfield just, you know, because it was fun and I liked it. We all enjoyed it. And it was just sort of an experiment every time. <laughs> but yeah, it, it was sort of like in the back of, I know it was in the back of Brian's mind, but it was kind of in the back of my mind as well that I would eventually, you know, kind of meet again and um, work on some other project together. And a couple of years later, we did. And that opening, opening uh, Elena like Ryan was starting to say, it was really, you know, we had an incredible team of people, like so much experience and a lot of people who were kind of like at the point where they were like, you know, we're done with the industry. This is, this is not for me anymore. I can't live like this anymore. And, you know, we kind of convinced them that it would be different. And, you know, just one more, one more, <laughs> one more time, one more restaurant. And so we had a lot of people that were kind of, you know, on the, on the edge of leaving, join us and bring they brought with them you know years their years and years of experience it was in that moment where we were like you know there's a better way to do this like luckily we were kind of young enough that we could see this happening i had gotten sober uh, a couple years earlier and you know i was i was really um ready to do something different you know like the same that same thing started to feel really tired really boring and and like it was just so unhealthy and watching people around us you know just like become destroyed either, you know, like through like substance abuse, but also through like the culture, this insanely toxic culture. And, you know, we could also see that there was like a change happening with, you know, the the kids that were working for us too. They didn't want the same thing that we wanted, you know, or that we grew up with. Like they wanted something different. They wanted, they had healthier boundaries. They had more clear ideas of like what was and wasn't acceptable. Um, you know, I think that they wanted a more balanced lifestyle. And I think that like, you know, to an extent, I think diners wanted it too. You know, like there, there's only so much of that like excess, like more is more until, you know, it's really not. And the truth is like when you're in that, you, you kind of think it's the only way, you know, but like when you, when you, when you remove yourself from it a little bit and you look at it with a little bit of perspective, you're like, you know, it's really nice going for dinner and not having someone give you shots. <laughs> you know what I mean? You know, it's really nice. Like, like sometimes like not getting served an extra main course like when you're already full, you know what I mean? Like, and I'm not saying like, you know, we, we didn't want to be generous. I'm just saying like, we, we just like wanted to like, like be able to have restaurants that were fun and healthy, you know, and healthy in like every, every way possible. I mean, like healthy in terms of like the ingredients that we were using, you know, um, really like, like leaning into, to doing pizza in a different way, which we can get into, 
but like healthy in terms of like a work environment. We wanted long-term sustainability for our employees, you know, like which we felt was like going to make a healthier business, which is absolutely true. Um, and we wanted, you know, uh, and we wanted like a healthier lifestyle, i.e. like, you know, not the staff, not, you know, getting like blackout drunk every night. And so like what we realized was like it was it was an easy thing if you start from the top and, you know, like at the top, you know, like the owners aren't the ones providing or instigating the party all the time and the management follows suit and then the, the staff just kind of follows suit. I'm not saying they don't go out and have drinks like they're, you know, of course, and they should and they're encouraged to. But like, you know, the the culture isn't like we're a family, like, let's get fucked up all the time together. You know what I mean? Like, and then, you know, you create this, this really horrible environment where people feel that they can't leave. Uh, they, they don't grow, they don't learn. They're always hungover. You know, it's like, it's, and then, and then all kinds of bad things stem from that. So have you seen like a better retention of employees, uh, since kind of making that switch? It's insane. Like it's crazy. A, you know, the staff is, they're better equipped, you know, to do the job on a daily basis as a result they're I'm not then again like I'm not saying the kids don't come in hungover like like th they do it's fine like but it's interesting because like you know they're kids and they can handle it like a hangover you know what I mean but like it's not like a it's not like an every like a, a daily thing where it's like every day is like that you know and that's when it starts to become really tricky but yeah like, and it's not like drinking on the job because I remember my very first line cooking job like my sous chef would sit in the office during service with a cocktail and like if the cooks wanted to go to the bar and grab like a pitcher of beer, you could and like literally drink beer on the line. And that was my first experience working in a kitchen. For sure. For sure. I mean, that was every kitchen I ever worked in, you know, like that was every or sorry, every restaurant I ever worked in like was like that, you know, um, usually I was the one, you know, supplying the booze uh, and like and even like even supplying. like I was the one like insisting, you know, so it's like. It is a totally different thing. And yes, the staff retention is, is, is nuts. And I mean, it's part of the reason that we wanted to open up a third restaurant again. Like we had like, this is pre pandemic. So like we had this team that had been together for almost two years from the opening, you know? Uh, so the busboys needed to become waiters and the waiters needed to become managers or maitre d's or whatever. And it was like, and no one was moving anywhere. Uh, you know, like once we'd like kind of cycled through, you know, the first cup, like that first, you know, I don't know when you open a new restaurant, there's always like a, a team that, like is like your opening team and then that kind of you know they they go off and and like you build like you know a, a more solid foundation maybe after that but uh you know we had yeah like incredible retention the it's it's really truly been like an amazing thing and it's still today is like that because like you know i believe that restaurants have like a dna right like when they're created they have their own dna and it's it's interesting you can try as hard as you can to to change culture but if you when you when you start with like a certain DNA, it's very difficult to completely change that. And and I'm not saying that you can't make it better. And there are adjustments there. You can absolutely always make it better. But like when you start with an idea of like, you know what, like this is going to be a, a different kind of place with like a different kind of mindset, a different kind of environment that's in the DNA. It kind of permeates everything else. And you kind of touched on it a little bit and looking at DNA how do you think about sourcing sustainability, responsibility, um, you know, with other vendors and so forth? I know you like to use you know, local seasonal, which a lot of people say they do. But what does that really mean for you? Uh, yeah, that's I'll, I'll jump on that a little bit. I mean, I'm sure Ryan has things he could say, too. But um, that was also, you know, same thing from the jump was like informing 
how we built the menu, how we, um, you know, how we decide what goes on the menu. You know, for me, um, as much as possible, obviously we live in Canada, so it's not, you know, I don't have a greenhouse attached to the restaurant or anything like that where I can grow my own vegetables all year round. But um, as much as possible, like in during, definitely during the summer season, the spring season and fall, we are working very closely with a handful of farmers and suppliers that are working with the same kind of ethos that we are. Um, and a lot of those farmers are ex-chefs, you know, who've decided to open, to, they, you know, they, they kind of understand the same kind of mentality that we have where, where they want to be serving vegetables that didn't come from California or from, you know, overseas. I think a lot of Italian restaurants, at least like up until the last 10 years or so, and even probably still now, you know, in order for it to be kind of worth its salt as an Italian restaurant, you need to be using products from Italy. And I think, you know, we we try to like kind of question that a little bit. You know, we live in Quebec. So what, what do we have around us? We have like incredible cheese, you know, the, some of the best dairy and cheese in the country. And it's a huge, huge industry here. Like it's, it's just like there's such an amazing culture of like incredible cheeses. So why would we, you know, import cheese from Italy, you know, for everything like so there's there's a couple of products that we do use that are Italian, you know, that are that Ryan can talk about a little bit. But um... can, can I, yeah, can I jump in? Because uh, there's something uh, like I think to tie this all together, the idea of Ellen at the beginning was we're going to do natural leaven pizza. We were really interested in this idea of like of like sourdough pizza. But if we wanted to make it like Napolitan, like we wanted to make it like the pizza, like based on kind of the pizzas in Naples and like the roman style trattoria where you have like a restaurant that has like antipasti pizza pasta um as our like as our as our base but like with like a napolitan style pizza we thought like what makes napolitan pizza great in naples well the flour is from there the tomatoes are from there the cheese is from there you know what i mean and the ovens are built there and so what people have did for like 20 years or 30 years i guess is like import an oven from naples or from italy you know import flour double zero which ironically is wheat that's grown in Canada, shipped there, milled, and then shipped back. So like you're in, like it's like a crazy thing. So like you're importing an oven, importing flour, importing tomatoes, uh, in, and importing buffalo mozzarella, okay, and olive oil. So we can't do olive oil, so we import our own olive oil from our friends that make incredible organic olive oil from uh, two different wineries that we're very closely associated with in Italy. But otherwise. Oh, and tomatoes, we don't do tomatoes that are, we don't do enough tomatoes. Our growing season is not long enough to do like the right kind of tomato. So tomatoes come from California, from Bianco. But like the flour comes from 45 minutes outside of, uh, away from the restaurant. You know, it's organic local flour that's freshly milled for us. That's amazing. And that was like from day one, you know, and it was like, let's develop a sourdough starter that's ours with like this, with this base. Let's, you know, use this local flour. Let's have an, a local artisan builder oven in the style of like a, 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 you know, a traditional Napolitan oven, but with like local materials. And because like, if you think about Naples and pizza, it's, it's really a, a product of the terroir, right? It is that way because all the things are from there and it's always been done that way. Well, if you want to create great pizza, instead of importing and trying to recreate it, the, our idea was let's just make it a product of our terroir. And so Janice touched on the mozzarella, like the cheese. So like there's this incredible buffalo mozzarella producer here in Quebec. And so we use local buffalo mozzarella and we use, you know, the tomatoes that we can that are as close as possible and local flour. And we try and create something that's, you know, I mean, it tastes very Napolitan, but it's all with local ingredients. 
And when you use that as like your kind of like cornerstone or like the base idea or foundation of like of everything, everything else, every other decision goes that way too. You're like, okay, what's the best thing that we can do without compromising that's from here? Great, let's do it, you know? Um, is there something local that we can get instead of this? Great, let's do it, you know? Is there no way to get around Parmesan cheese? No problem, we'll buy Parmesan cheese, you know what I mean? Like not to be like, we try and do things like the the right way for, you know, our community and the environment. So it means working with like as many local chefs as possible. Janice does something amazing. Ellen is a very busy restaurant and especially in the summer season, like it's nuts. And so we can buy a lot, a lot of pro of produce. And so what happened was, you know, we couldn't keep up like the small farms we were working with couldn't keep up with our demand. And so Janice started meeting with them in March to plan full growing seasons for us for the following year so that they would choose seed together. They would plan, they would have a plan for like when, like when things would grow and then what we could be allocated like in the springtime, like long before the ground even thawed so that we could start to like really figure out from all these different farms, like kind of a way to get as much amazing local organic produce as we could get for the, for like the really busy season. Uh, and then in the winter, you know, yes, we have to import certain things from California. There's no question, but at the same time, like, you know, we do a ton of work preserving. So like when we have an abundance of things, you know, like we, we have these amazing artichokes here that are great and the growing season's pretty short, but like we work super hard all the time to be like, you know, preserving, like pickling, yeah. like things like artichokes, uh, jardiniere, like all that kind of stuff. And all that stuff is like, nothing is groundbreaking about what I'm saying. Like it's, it's not that original, but it's like, when you do, when like the foundation is like on like something that's like really good and like holistic in terms of like good for the community, good for the environment, good for then good for people when they eat it actually, you know, cause it's not processed. It's not like, you know, bleached. It's not, hasn't gone back and forth across the ocean one, two, three times. It becomes like something that you can like be proud to serve to your children too, you know? And then you're, yes, you're operating a restaurant, but like you're at least doing it in a way where like you know, it's helpful for like, or it's good for everybody. Yeah. And it sounds like, you know, you do a lot of seasonal stuff there. I, I don't feel like a lot of restaurants of this style do seasonal. Like most of the pizzerias I go to, it's the same toppings and everything year round. And if they have salads, it's like the same year round. And you don't see that as much in this type of restaurant, at least not where I am. No, you're totally right. And I mean, like that was, that was something that, you know, was always part of our, our like plan, you know, we, 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 we had this like idea that like, and this is, this goes back to before Elena that, you know, like with Nora Gray, where we were like, we want to kind of try and make food that like, is like the food that you serve that you get in Italy. So it's like, if you happen to be around during, you know, like Punterelle season, like Punterelle's everywhere, you know, but then like, it's not around if you're not there in the right season. You know what I mean? Like people tend to use these, like these products in like, like regionally specific products that are available in that moment. Like they'll, it's just like, it's everywhere in that moment. And then it's gone and it's gone. It's a little bit different now. I mean, people in like in Italy, like they import a lot of stuff too, but that's, that, that was kind of like what the idea was. And so, yes, we have so, certain things that are staples that don't change. But for example, like we do a mushroom pizza. It's always been on the menu since we opened, but the mushrooms change literally every season, every, every, like even like couple weeks, there's different mushrooms coming on because we're using cultivated from here. We're using wild forage from there. We're using this and depending on what's around and what's available, the toppings like the mushrooms completely change. You know, we're not getting like the same button mushrooms from like Cisco. You know, like we don't order like that. You know, like it's just not how we how we do things. 
and what it what it creates is it creates a more exciting product for 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 the guests, right? Because like if you love our mushroom pizza, win Chantrelle season, there's Chantrelles on it. Like that's pretty awesome, you know. It doesn't cost more; it's the same thing. And then it's also more exciting for the cooks too, because like they're always getting to work with different pro- products. You know what I mean? Like yes, it's it's the same thing, but like it changes. They get to handle different different things all the time, you know. Yeah, I th- I think I need to come up there and try some of your pizza. <laughs> So you've got a new cookbook out, Salad, Pizza, Wine. I'm sure you'd love to talk about your cookbook. One of the things I like to ask when I have cookbook authors on is, why write a book? It seems like a lot of work. There's obviously tons of good books out there about salad and pizza. And not that yours doesn't bring anything new to the table, but I kind of like to put that out there and just kind of say, why even go to what I would assume is a hassle to put a book out there? Well, this could get existential really fast. Yeah, uh, I mean, the, the, the reason that we did a book was because of the pandemic. Um, so uh, during like the first kind of wave, if you will, of the pandemic, post severe original lockdown, like when things kind of started to get back to normal, um, we were like one of the first restaurants, I guess, like Quebec had very, very, very restrictive mandates and, and rules about like being open. Uh, there was no dine-in for almost a year in our restaurants, you know, everything was takeout, um, not even outdoor, I don't think for the first year. And so we were like, you know, once we figured out how to do that, it worked out great for us. We were very busy, to be honest, you know, like we had a, a really, uh, we, we were able to pivot really fast and, and, and we were able to like maintain and hire as many staff as we could. Um, and, but at a certain point, like we looked around, like the, there was a friend of ours that had started a, uh, like a charity and a nonprofit. That was uh, for restaurant workers that were out of work because of the pandemic, because most restaurants weren't nimble enough or, or had, you know, people pe- pe- didn't have enough staff or whatever to be able to like to open and to do takeout right away. And so um, we decided to release a, like a, a, an ebook, like a small digital cookbook to raise money for this charity that would go to restaurant workers that were out of work so they could get like, you know, 500 bucks like a check or whatever to like tide them over between like you know when they're like ei kicked in kind of thing and um so we we put together this book we had all these amazing high def photos from a photographer that we've been working with for like you know the instagram account and like the visual identity of the restaurant and we kind of like raced through and janice uh and steph who wrote the book and marley uh who designed it who's our partner like kind of put together this amazing 15 page like digital cookbook um, and we sold like, you know, several thousand copies for, you know, 10 or 15 bucks online. Um, with the first one, I think we raised $50,000. The first. Yeah. Uh, wow. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah it, all, it was great. To restaurant orders. And it, so that was great. So once we had that, we were like, well, I mean, this is basically, you know, uh, like a book pitch. <laughs> uh, you know, we had like, we had proof of concept. Um, we had like actually like a layout and, and some recipes already done. And so we decided to uh, shop it and, you know, we were lucky and someone wanted to, you know, appetite uh, for, it's a division of Random House here in Canada. It's a cookbook publisher based in Vancouver. They, they wanted it. So um, that's how it happened. And to be fair, like by the time we like kind of signed that book deal, we had time, like we were, our dining room was closed. You know, it was like, it was basically like a pizza box storage, like a giant pizza box storage room. You know, I mean, it was like there was like nothing happening there and we were doing like tons of takeout, but like, you know, just really pizzas and salad and, and wine. And we were like, 
we had we had like the time, we had the energy, we had the motivation to really sink into this. You know, that all evaporated when like dining rooms reopened and like things got crazy again. Uh, but by then we were lo- well into the process. So, you know, it was kind of like a, a, a perfect opportunity for us to like to do something. And like I said before, like we love stress and like we love to be like like busy and doing projects. And so this was just like the perfect kind of thing at, at that moment, you know, and also, you know, if you remember back to like, you know, whatever, what is it like two and a half years ago or three years ago now, you know, there was like feeling like part of something or doing something and having like, you know, working on a project, like being able to like really like dive into things like that. Uh, it was like, it was very helpful mentally, you know, to, it was like, it, it helped keep us all sane and, and, and well, I think. Oh, yeah, I was going to say that I think that is the major silver lining of the pandemic was that so many creative projects came out of it. And even like the impact that it I would say that it had on on Elena is humongous. You know, like we it's it has a little bit shifted the DNA, I would say, of of how we operate, even like we've gone even deeper, I, I would say, on like making sure that everybody's safe all the time. And, you know, everything's all the decisions are made with everyone's best interests in mind. So, yeah. It's it's kind of awesome. It was an awesome product of that. I found that you learned to cut some of the bullshit out, right? Like you have your business model and it's like oh, this thing kind of wasn't working before and then it really wasn't going to work during COVID. And then you just like cut it loose and then it never comes back, you know? Elena certainly was like streamlined to like really like a bare bones, you know, kind of pizzeria uh, at the beginning because we didn't have any staff. Um, and the only thing people really wanted was pizza. And so... We were lucky in that way that we had a product that people wanted that was like, you know, easily transportable. Uh, there was some precedent already about people doing takeout pizza. So it wasn't like, you know, reinventing, reinventing uh, anything. Then there was a moment where it was like, okay, now we have to actually like do, we, we need to like expand. And so Chris Cameron, who's our chef and who's our uh, pizzaiolo at Elena, he developed a, a hoagie uh, recipe and we started doing hoagies uh, as well during, during that time, which, which have stuck around we still do them at lunch now yeah i wanted to talk uh, about hoagies i used to live in the yeah. philly area and i definitely really like hoagies as a, you know not a montreal thing no. uh and i know in your book did did he go down to badia is that what it was and yeah and it brought that yeah. idea back he's obsessed with hoagies like yeah. the, the, it really came out of that like he was doing hoagies just because he was obsessed with hoagies and he would make them for staff meal and he was just like oh look at it and he was just like obsessed and it, it, it just kind of like grew out of that i would say Totally. And like Joe, Joe is doing these, like the hoagies were so good. Joe's a buddy of ours. And we went down to see him and we were like, that was right before the pandemic also. And we were like, oh man, like we gotta, like, we should do this. We should do this. And it wasn't really like a thing that we were, I think actually going to do, but then, you know, again, like opportunity, uh, was there. We had the time, we had the energy, we had the resources. It was like, we had the space, we had all these things. And so that became part of it. And why we called it a hoagie, well, because it's modeled after obviously like a Philadelphia ho- style hoagie, and no one here calls them hoagies. Here we do we do sous-marins, we do sub submarines, submarine sandwiches. So like everything here is like a sub. And I know that sometimes we make hoagie, we call things hoagies that are definitely subs, and we call things hoagies that are are really just like our sandwiches. But like you know, we just decided it would be the umbrella term, and you know, it did start out with like like kind of a traditional, very traditional looking hoagie. And now it's morphed into something where we do, you know, like, 
like uh fried chicken ones and like you know kind of a little bit more like of a of a creative kind of take on a hoagie for sure how the reception um, been with customers are people digging them yeah it's great it's great people love it um we do like a special we do like we do like a traditional like usually it's like mortadella or like you know more or like capicola like something like that hoagie like every every day um and then on the on the weekends on fridays and saturdays we do like a special one and usually for the special one there's like a lineup for it you know we'll announce it that morning what it is it might be a meatball um might be like a fried chicken with spicy honey it might be uh you know i don't know they've they've done so many that sounds amazing i'm a big hoagie guy like i could eat a hoagie every day i mean it's not really good for your waistline (laughs) same with eating pizza Look, looking at your cookbook, I know you love doing, you know, all naturally leavened pizzas. For people who get the book, if they don't want to get into making a starter, can they still make pizzas using your recipes? Yeah, there's definitely, we we kind of acknowledge that that's, you know, that's a big endeavor. It's a big uh, commitment, you know. It's kind of like getting a pet, a family pet, you know, you really have to <laughs> commit yourself to it. So we did include a... a sort of non-leavened version, like a yeasted version for both the Altaglio pizza dough and the Neapolitan. So it's totally possible to, you know, have a lower lower commitment level and still have a nice product. It's never going to hurt you to have that on hand and just make a ton of bread. But like every time I've tried to do it, I just cannot keep it maintained. I should be making pizza or bread every day, but it's just like I, d- I don't get the whole feeding thing done and then it's not right. And uh I've gone to more just like using yeast to get my doughs going. Yeah, I, I would say it, it, it might not be for the beginner, you know, like why don't you try the try the yeasted version, have a little success and then, you know, and then see the virtues of <laughs> of naturally leaven and, and work your way up to it, I would say. You're not going to make a naturally leaven pizza on a whim, you know, so it has to be something you plan. So, you know, it's like, yes, you can make a yeasted, you could do a yeasted one, no problem, uh, like kind of you know, with a little bit of, 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 uh, of foresight, but then, you know, for, if you're going to do natural 11, it's like you plan, you plan to do it for an event or for like a, uh, a thing or something, you know, cause it takes a couple of days. So it's, it is, it is definitely like more of a commitment. It is definitely takes more planning, but once it's done that, like that part, I mean, it's, it's pretty much just as easy. Just, you have to li- have to be a little bit more proactive. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely a lot of pitfalls. There's a lot of things that can, kind of go wrong when you're making pizza so i think even like as as a kind of like a gateway thing to for people to start with the yeasted one it's you know like get all your get all the kinks out like get get to know how the dough feels how to stretch it out like you know you make your mistakes on something that's a little bit less time investment then you know you build a little confidence and then once you get to the you you get kind of a little more comfortable going because if you if you just went for the naturally 11 one and had a failure you would just kind of the likelihood of you trying again would be a lot lower, I think, you know. I have a friend who has a naturally leavened pizza business here and then another friend who does naturally leavened breads. And they said, you know, what they see when they talk to people is someone makes something, it doesn't come out really well, and then they switch recipes. And it's not the recipe yeah. that the, was the problem. It's just like you need the repetition, <laughs> it's <you>. right? It's <laughs> you. But, you know, like you do and, and take good notes. You make your pizza dough this time and it's too wet. We'll add less liquid next time or it's too whatever. Like maybe it needs more time, but like find a really good recipe and maybe stick with that and just like take notes of what you need to do next time instead of like, oh, this recipe didn't work. Let's find a new one. It is probably you. Right. It's just the practice. Yeah, there's there's It's just a tremendous amount of trial and error, I think. And there's a big learning curve, I would say, and it's it's one of the th- it was one of the biggest challenges of writing the book was trying to kind of 
kind of distill that for people in in sort of manageable chunks for people to really understand and kind of get some insight on how 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 that works and have some success. I, I still don't stretch really well. Like I've been practicing for years, and my dough just like uh, my stretching game isn't down. But I also love a good pan pizza, so I'm uh, probably more likely to just throw a little oil in a pan and stretch my dough in there. You know, that's why we have the Altaglio recipe in there. It's I think it's actually something that's much better suited to make at home. Yeah, I, I'm also like pretty hopeless when it comes to stretching. But, you know, like at the end of the day, like pizza should be fun and like the whole thing should be fun. And like I have a hard time when I'm like cooking for the family if like it doesn't turn out perfectly. So I get it. Like I get really frustrated, you know, if it's not like perfect. But at the same time, like pizza, you know, like if you can include the family, if you can include your friends in like doing it and like you make it like an event that's fun, like it really should be, you know, like pizza is fun like our the pizzerias are fun because it's a fun food to eat you know i will say though that like i do cooking classes and i got hired to teach uh, it was like a 10 year old's birthday and i had like 10 10 year old girls and they wanted to make pizza from scratch and that was like a nightmare and all the parents showed up and were just standing there watching it was in their home kitchen too so like i brought my 40 pound baking steel chucked that in the oven like you know as soon as i got there and they're just like, you know, they're saucing. I'm like, that's a lot of sauce. Oh, it's okay. I love sauce. And it's like covered and it's like overflowing. I, I was like, I one, I'm never going to do kids cooking classes again. I'm definitely not doing pizza offsite in someone else's house. Like with my kids at home, yeah, maybe not going to continue that as part of my business model though. Why well, we don't employ little kids. <laughs> you also have really cool recipes in there too that are not salads or pizzas. I, I was drawn to the carrot recipe with like the carrot marmalade. Like that sounds delicious and something that I'm going to tackle. And I always love a good mostarda. So like a porchetta with like a mostarda, that sounds great. So not just pizza and salad and wine. Yeah, definitely. There's more. There's more to it. <laughs> yeah. Well, also, you know, when we open when we opened the restaurant, uh, the menu is a little bit uh, broader, you know, so there was always like a there was always like a protein, whether it was like chicken or steak or out of the, like out of the wood oven. Um, we were doing things like that. And, you know, again, like the pandemic kind of like streamlined the menu and that stuff fell off. But like, you know, when you're thinking about a cookbook, it's like you want to be able to be the book that people can go to for like multiple different occasions. You know, I think about the cookbooks that I love that I reach for all the time. And it's like, you know, um, a great example is like a, like the Six Seasons cookbook or something, uh, which is a great book and like you know it's like i'll make a salad from there i'll make a pasta from there i'll make a, a like a, a chicken dish from there you know because like i once once you start to like get into it if you like the way that the like one recipe tastes you know it's it's like it's easy to go down down the road yeah and i think that you know like we know that like it's like this is not we didn't want to just do an exclusive pizza cookbook you know like joe Badia, dan dan richter like uh richard they, they did like really good pizza books like we don't need to do a pizza book again you know it's like part of what we do obviously it's a big part of what we do but you know like the restaurant is also more than pizza so the book is a lot more than pizza i don't think i've ever seen a cookbook that has a fuck mary kill section in it either just <laughs> get like points for being bold i don't know that i always agree with your rankings maybe kill the pine nuts but uh, <laughs> uh it's, it's it's a tough one now i'd kill the pine nuts are too expensive <laughs> um and I, I, I want to talk a little bit about natural wine. Like, I don't really know a lot about it. I know it's something that's kind of popped the past couple of years and a lot of people talk about natural wine. So how did you decide to focus on natural wines? Um, it was something that, you know, when I started out, we didn't talk about natural wine. It wasn't like a, a term that even existed. 
And, you know, I, I was always really into like very, well, I mean, like, like a lot of people, I, I came in through like the new world, you know, kind of like bold, easy things to understand. Uh, but very quickly, I became really, really uh, interested in, in these like old world wines. You know, I was drank a lot of Burgundies and, and, and wines from the Loire and the Jura. And, um, and as my taste kind of evolved into like seeking out these like more and more kind of pure, more like traditional expressions of, of like of terroir and of like sense of place in wines, you know, it was kind of at the same time that this like this kind of uh, this this movement was was sort of taking shape in France and, and elsewhere. And, and luckily, like luckily for me, I kind of, you know, was there at the beginning and became like a like a, an early adopter and then like, you know, a disciple who spread the word uh, of natural wine. And for many years, it was like you want to talk about uphill battles trying to convince someone in 2010 to drink an orange wine or trying to convince someone in 2010, you know, to like have these like no, no sulfur wines that were super all over the place with like tons of volatile acidity, you know, and, and explain to them that they were better than their like California Cabernet Sauvignon. I mean, it's like literally like apples and oranges. Um, but there was something there that I loved. I mean, I loved the story. I loved the, as I met the winemakers that were behind these wines, they really spoke to me. Um, I loved, uh, how passionate they were and how like not not like self-righteous but like they had this like almost like dogmatic approach like no like this is the way and it's the only way and really what they were talking about was like you know this thing that wasn't new this is just a a, a way to go back pre-industrialization of wine pre-industrialization of ag agriculture so you know like working without chemicals in the vineyard first of all um so doing like organic biodynamic uh or or more kind of farming which is like obviously better for the environment, uh, obviously like better for human consumption. And then in the cellar also doing the same thing, because like what people don't talk about a lot of the time is that with natural wine or with or with industrial wine, I should say, uh, even like a wine that's like certified organic, like there are like hundreds of different things you can put in to your wine after you've harvested your organic grapes that are literally all chemical related, you know? And so you can have an organic wine that really has tons of shit put in it after the fact and there's no regulation on that and so you know like the natural wine movement is to say like we just grew the best grapes we could they represent the vintage and the place that they're from and then we did as little as possible in the cellar put it in a bottle and we hope you enjoy it and people that are really good at that those wines have like i think like much more energy and much more depth than like a wine that's made conventionally because like a conventional wine that uses lots of yeast and lots of um uh like uh like uses like non-indigenous yeast and that uses like sulfur dioxide in large amounts like it it kind of new it like really actually just neuters the wine and it it's no longer like a it's no longer alive it's no longer really like evolving uh shape like changing um it just kind of is like a beverage and so i love this idea of like you know something that's like like exciting and alive and like changes and that and that moves and like it might not taste different like it'll taste different from one day to the next it's not always the same thing that's very exciting do they go uh, off easily like can you have problems with them just like with, with any wine you have the same you have the same amount of risk for like like you know certain certain problems and then the only thing is that because they don't have any preservatives they tend to not hold as long once they're open you know so it means that like they'll they won't taste as good after opening like the next day often, you know? So it means that if you're working wines by the glass, things like that, you have to be a little bit more like on the ball with that kind of stuff. You can't just like 
assume that it'll taste okay. You have to, you have to kind of track the evolution. They evolve differently. And part of that is like amazing because, you know, it's so fun to taste a wine like a day after opening to see where it's gone and what it is and where it's at. Um, it might not taste the same, but it, it might taste a lot better. Whereas like yeah. with like conventional wine, it, it pretty much tastes the same or like bad, uh, like a day after, you know? Where do you guys find inspiration? And I'm not necessarily talking just in the food world. It could be anywhere. What inspires you? Mm, I I look at a lot of, I studied fine arts and I take a lot of inspiration from like every creative outlet there is, I would say. Um, I'm super into like fiber arts right now and like music, you know, I, I play music also in a, uh, with some, with friends. I've played in a few bands. So I, I, I feel like I draw inspiration from like, everyone around me who's doing something creative I get so excited when somebody's like into some kind of creative project I just I find it just lights me right up I, I think it's incredible um and like in the in all the seasons like as they change I get inspiration from like things that are becoming available you know when the first asparagus come when the first you know snow crab come it's just like it's exciting you know and and I find often trying to trace back like the inspiration for a dish sometimes is a little bit of a squiggly line you know sometimes like I'll hear a podcast about some weird science innovation or you know it's 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 from fucking all over the place (laughs) but uh yeah a a lot of it comes comes from the products themselves I would say and from the farmers that I now have developed we've developed these like amazing connections with and a lot of a lot of uh, other like restaurant restaurants in the city and restaurants in other places too like going to visit New York going to visit uh, restaurants in Europe, you know, once in a while when we're able, uh, is super inspiring for me. Um, yeah, I was going to say like travel, you know, Europe for me, for sure, particularly, uh, Italy, uh, I try and go as often as humanly possible. I really am very inspired by the like traditional restaurants in Italy. I love, love the idea of like, uh, of history in cooking and like, you know, um, just like sticking to like tradition and using like these like you know local things and do you have anything you want to leave the listeners with before we get out of here today any parting words words of wisdom life advice well buy the book and food should be fun food shouldn't just be like making dinner or making a meal for someone shouldn't just be a chore like it should be fun for everybody and that's it that's what i would say try to keep it fun yeah i agree with that i mean i think that like definitely like we take our the business of our restaurant seriously you know like we want the business to be healthy um but we want the experience for everybody from the guests to the to everyone on staff to be like enjoyable and as fun as possible and i would love to see you know more restaurants like just not take themselves so seriously and try and have a little more fun it takes all the joy out of it when you make it so serious. And there's nothing I want less than to go to a place and feel like everyone's trying so hard to be like so serious and to be like, you know, at this, like it, it just, it's, it's not interesting to me anymore. And I think that it, it creates, it creates really toxic environments, you know, when like there's so much pressure on people to perform at such a, such a, like an impossibly high level. And so, you know, I'd like to see the industry continue to evolve in like healthier ways. And I think that, you know, that's kind of like the, that's kind of, I hope where we're going. Um, Certainly like with our restaurants, that's where we're trying to be. 
you know, maintain a really high quality and standard, but like also, you know, give people a quality of life, you know? Yeah, I think happy employees and employees who have some say into what their workday looks like, I think they're going to give better service. The That's going to transfer over to your customers and just that overall environment. You can feel it. Like there's nothing like going into one of those stuffy formal restaurants where you feel like, you know, I slide my chair to go to the bathroom and like someone's got to pull the chair out, yeah. like, meticulously fold the napkin by the time I come back and everyone just feels like they're carrying that tension in their shoulder and neck. Like that translates over to the dining experience because I've definitely felt that as a customer. So 100%. I was just going to say one of the, I think one of our goals, like when we have guests come to the restaurant is that we make a connection with the guests as well. And that makes for like an extra special experience, not just a meal that you ate, you came, you ate, you left, you know, it's creating some kind of memorable experience. And a lot of that comes from like giving the opportunity for people to express themselves and what's interesting about them. And that's what makes for like an enjoyable experience. And, I think that's really what we tried to do with the book as well, like try to kind of communicate that same kind of energy. So hopefully people will respond to that and, you know, feel connected to something as well. Like that was kind of a big, as Ryan mentioned earlier, a big motivation for us to create this book. And uh, yeah. Well, that's what drew me to the book because, you know, I have the opportunity to have a lot of cookbook authors on the show. There's a ton of cookbooks out there. And as I'm kind of looking at them, it's like, what's the vibe? And does it seem like the people who wrote this book are also going to be fun to have on the podcast and not just, you know, want to shill their kind of stuffy cookbook <laughs> from their stuffy restaurant. So it, it translated over. I got that. So yeah, the fuck Mary kill really makes sure that, that you realize that we don't take ourselves that seriously, I guess. Sets the tone. Yeah, it really does. I'm glad that we got that in there. Yeah. I can't believe they I I can't believe they put it in actually. <laughs> Thanks for coming on the show. That seems like an amazing place to pause this. Um, we're going to promote the heck out of this book when it comes out. Everything will be in the show notes for the listeners. And uh, let's spread the spread the love around, right? Thank you so much, man. Really a pleasure. And to all of our listeners, as always, this has been Chris with the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. Go to chefswithoutrestaurants.org to find our Facebook group, mailing list, and chef database. The community is free to join. You'll get gig opportunities, advice on building and growing your business, and you'll never miss an episode of our podcast. Have a great week.